0: and welcome back to the History Connection podcast. I am Michael Musangu, a student at the University of Portland studying biology and minoring in history. Today, I want to start off with a little quote by George Orwell. It says, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. I'm going to read that again. I I thought this quote was very timely. It was very powerful. And and it speaks right to the point of, I think, some of the things that we're seeing in the world that we're living in right now. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. I thought this was interesting because honestly, it's true. If you live in a world where you are only allowed to tell people what they want to hear, that takes away the idea and the essence of Liberty and taking away that essence of Liberty does not mean you are actually free. That's the whole point of the concept of free speech. Anyways, I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was an interesting quote to start off. Next thing I want to talk about is before we get started on this episode, I do want to let all my listeners know, starting next week, we're going to be starting a new section on this podcast. I've been working on it for a bit. It's called Unsung Heroes. Essentially, we are going to now start publishing podcasts weekly, and it's going to have this section talk about different people in history whom we do not give credit to, hence the term Unsung Heroes. These are the people in history that we've always wanted to talk about uh, that we've always wanted to talk about in the sense of being able to acknowledge because being able to acknowledge what they've done, because actually, if we do not give recognition to what they've done, most of the major events in history probably would not have happened. And therefore I'm going to start giving more light to some of these people starting next week. So without further ado, Let's move on into part two of Modern Ireland. Today we're going to be discussing the episode um, with the idea from the Easter Rising, moving on into Ireland becoming a republic or part of Ireland becoming a republic. We're we're all going to learn about that today. But today you will be able to learn about what was the cause behind the Easter Rising, what was the geopolitics in the world around this time, and really the motivations, the goals, and what ended in the Irish Civil War where it was literally the former IRA and Catholics versus Catholics literally fighting each other because their goals and ideals were different from the ones set forth in the Easter Rising. You will all learn this today on this podcast. I hope it's interesting, and I hope that you take something away from this as insight into human nature and what different goals and ideals are in in learning about the essence of liberty. Alrighty, I hope you're ready because I'm ready. This is gonna be fun. So let's just go ahead and start off. So last we left off in 1914. You know, in 1914, this is when Herbert Asquith, Prime Minister of England, basically said that, hey, We're going to give you Home Rule. Remember that third Home Rule Bill? We're going to give it to you. You guys will literally be able to have your own Parliament. Remember, Home Rule means you can have your own Parliament, but it doesn't mean you need to be a free country. Okay, so they were going to give Dublin their own Parliament. And basically, all the people in the Irish Parliamentary Party basically is like, yes, we finally get our own Parliament. Then World War One happened. And with World War One happening, everyone's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me, because now they're like, because most people actually thought World War One was going to end by Christmas. So they really didn't think that there was any point in like, you know, worrying too much. But once they started to realize World War One was starting to become like a big scale problem that was more than just like six months, they're like, oh my goodness, we uh, we, we, need a plan. So this is where our story begins today the Easter Rising was mainly planned by the IRB. The IRB is the Irish Republican Brotherhood. These were the group this was a group of really secretive people who were really into ta- into the freedom and the liberty of Ireland through force. They they were really into force. They were really rough men. But the IRB had two goals in Making Ireland a free republic, the first goal was to set up a provisional government and secondly establish the independent Republic of Ireland. all right they did want an independent republic, regardless of what you know other people may have said, whether they or whether they cared very much or not it really didn't matter, but they wanted an independent republic regardless so basically they saw that England was going through difficulty in World War One, and this means that, well, hey, while England is busy, we have an opportunity to act. So Ireland decided they were going to act, and now we start to see major players like Thomas Clark. Remember Thomas Clark from last episode? Or rather, that was Arthur Griffith. <laughs> Thomas Clark was one of the men who was also really into Forming a free republic of ireland but he did not want ireland to be split apart in fact he wanted ireland to stay together and we'll see how the story pans out later but thomas clark basically forms a military council he was one of the more how do i say senior um, of the men and he was um deciding hey let's form a council so we can plan this uprising this council is consisted of people like patrick pierce Eamon kent Joseph Plunkett and Sean MacDermott. Forgive me if I'm not saying these words, these names correctly. I'm not an expert. (laughs) These are a lot of Irish, Gaelic type names, and I do not speak Gaelic. I speak French. So that is also part of this. So now, the main makeup of this council, of um, the military council to plan the uprising, was actually most Irish, uh, most IRB members. And the Irish Volunteers. Now, remember, the Irish Volunteers from last episode were the response to the Ulster Volunteers with the Ulster, with the whole Ulster riots and lockout that was going on, or not really lockout. That was the Dublin lockout. The Ulster um, riots because you know people were not happy with this idea of Home Rule. Everyone in Ulster, remember, these are the people who are like, you know what, we want to stay with England. We don't have a problem with having a king. We're chilling. You know, let's just yeah. And everyone else in Ireland is like, "Um, we want to be free because they're not treating us correctly. So the Irish volunteers were made in response to Ulster also creating a volunteer. Um, Really, it was a paramilitary group. It wasn't really a volunteer group, but it was a paramilitary group that people really did, um, that people actually used militarily. It was basically a militia. All right. So they basically made this military council and they're starting to plan an armed uprising. By 1916, um, they were basically all like, yeah, an armed uprising will do it. Because literally, England is busy fighting a war. There's no way they can supply enough troops to take care of us. I mean, literally, we can do this. And most are like, yeah, great plan. Now, Ewan McNeil, he was not in favor of the uprising. And the reason was, I mean, I mean, Britain has a whole army. Ireland just had, you know, a couple of militia volunteers, the IRB, the the ICA, which we'll come into later, and the Irish volunteers. So, I mean, having an armed uprising, I mean, that's not a smart idea. We're going to get trampled. It was literally a suicide mission. As most people started to realize you know having an armed uprising against britain as much as they're in war they can supply a lot of men we do not have countless numbers of men that they do and it could result in literal in literal suicide it's a literal suicide mission but evan mcneil said i don't think i want to do this the only time i would actually up be in favor of an uprising is if britain forces conscription On Ireland, conscription meaning the draft, essentially Uh, forced um, military service and against and being against conscription. I mean, makes sense. Remember, for most of Ireland's history, they have been viewed as a thorn in the side of Britain. Right. It's not their war that they're fighting. Ireland is just unionized again with Act of the Union of 1801 unionized with britain but let's be real with the famine and all these things that happened i mean england did not treat ireland very well as a country and really it's not their war england got into the war but that was none of ireland's business ireland was like hey we didn't we did not sign up for that all right but westminster says hey you must come to the aid of the country and they're like no 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 we are our own culture this is not our fight we are our own people and you'll see how people you know um thought it was not a good idea Ewan mcneil actually thought that if there was an uprising there would be very little chance of success and it's because of the fact that literally they didn't have enough men to really go and actually revolt against the crown you see the thing that we must recognize is that this whole faction that started the irish republican movement right and the idea of an independent republic of ireland the people behind this movement were a small faction there was not a lot of public support for them all right these are just viewed as like another minority political party if you if we put it in today's terms trying to gain notoriety for something that is just not part of the populist idea now they were convinced in getting this idea because <clears throat> they thought that being yoked to England is there's no point in it they're, they're different people they're different cultures there's literally no advantage in remaining part of the part of the of the Union, part of the UK. And thus they started making military preparations by the middle of 1915. But by early 1916, now we have another player in this whole saga named James Connolly. James Connolly was the leader of the Irish Citizen Army. A little backstory on James Connolly is that he actually was um how do I say? He was literally born in Scotland, born in the Irish, uh, in the Scottish slums, and he eventually came to Ireland and started working. He eventually, um, moved into Ireland and started getting involved with the Socialist Party. He was very influenced by people like Larkin, one of the major Socialist people of the time. Started going to lectures and learned about socialism and started to in. Engaged that ideology to such a point where he said if Ireland is free We need Ireland to be free and socialist That was his idea and most people are like well not quite we don't think that's a smart idea But that was his idea but regardless of whether Ireland was socialist or not. He was Set on one thing Ireland should be a free country alrighty so he also fought in the English military Um, which is why he actually became one of the point people in this whole military council as they started to plan the Easter uprising. And in doing this, he actually started um, with the creation of the ICA in, I believe, 1913. He started to then have them perform military drills. And actually, he... Um, They started to become more militarized, right? He started to train them because in the military, he had a lot of military drills, but he wasn't even a high rank in the military. I think he was like a corporal. But that said, he had more military training than literally anyone else on the council. And thus, they viewed him as a person to be leader in literally the military endeavors. So in 1916, we see people now like Thomas McDonough, who was added to the military council in order to form the provisional government of Ireland. Connolly and Thomas McDonough were both added to this provisional council. And how this happened was actually interesting because I never knew this story. Like, it just sounds like something like that the CIA would do or something, you know. In 1916, he was, I believe, at some city hall, all right, in the middle of Dublin. And during the middle of the day, he just disappeared. No one knew of his whereabouts. For like a couple, I think it was a couple days, actually. Like he literally disappeared. He was in the middle of city hall and then he disappeared and no one knew what happened. turns out he was taken by two IRB members to he was taken by two IRB members to city hall. Oh, actually, he was taken by two IRB members and he was told the entire plan of what was to be said what was to be done during the Easter Rising. And basically they said, hey, you're going to be the military mind behind the whole operation. And thus, in working with the IRA, he started working out all the logistics, all the ballistics that they need to make this rebellion successful. And in doing that, they decided, hey, we're going to set this rebellion for Easter Sunday, April 23rd, 1916. Preparations started to move forward, everyone seemed to be ready, they're like, hey, we're gonna get this done. But by April 22nd, another main man of the party, whose name was Roger Casement, he was supposed to bring German reinforcements. And that's one thing I did want to note geopolitically. Ireland had a really nice relationship with Germany. I don't understand it. but. They were like, hey, Germany, like, we need your help. So could you give us some, like, rifles, some stuff so we can fight, (laughs) you know? And Germany's like, all right. So Roger Casement set this whole thing up. They get some 22,000 rifles from Germany. But basically what happened is Roger Casement was coming on a ship called the AUD, the A. UD. I can't pronounce that very well either. But the I, I I don't know. But the, the key is, he was supposed to come, all right, and on April 22nd, the day before the uprising, but it didn't happen because Roger Casement got captured. Casement got captured, and let's just say that was not a good thing because he was captured by the British military. So now that he got captured, everyone's like, oh, um well i guess um the rising's canceled but everyone's like no 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 no." if we attack tomorrow right being the 23rd then everyone will know it's coming but if we attack monday the 24th no one will see that coming you see so they're like it shouldn't be a problem so they decided to basically make this whole plan of taking strategic buildings all over the city of dublin And basically cut the city off and resist attack from the British army coming in. And on Monday, the 24th, four battalions got formed. And there was actually a fifth one that did most of the administrative stuff. But there were four main battalions that did most of the fighting. And then the fifth battalion really did the passing out of orders, the logistics behind, hey, you do this, bring these troops here. You go there. That that sort of thing. Alrighty. So they went and this 5th Battalion, full of the administrative people, took the general post office. Alright. Now, if you look at the layout of Dublin on a map, I, I, I think what I will do is probably try in the show notes to include a little map of all the locations that were taken by the. ICA and the IRB, well, really the whole military council who were part of the rebellion. And you will see on this map where everything was placed and you will understand strategically what they were trying to do. Alrighty, so they took the general post office. Now, this had most of the council, right, the administrative people. And in fact, when this happened, they take the general post office and most of the people were like, "What, what, what, what is going on? And you have Patrick Pierce out here reading this proclamation of an independent republic to the Ireland, Irish people—just imagine him holding like some like piece of paper and him just reading a a proclamation of an independent republic to the to an indifferent crowd. Really, they didn't really know what was going on. They were like, um, "Okay," and literally everyone's like, "Wow." Okay, so they just continued on. Now, while Pierce. Was doing that outside of the general post office. The first battalion, under the command of Ned Daly, took on an area called the Four Courts and all the space in the northwest of the, of town in Dublin. Thomas McDonough, he took Jacobs Biscuit Factory. Just I'm gonna ask one question after I continue on with this. McDonough took Jacobs Biscuit Factory. Eamon De Valera. Took on Boland's Bakery. All right. Boland's Bakery. So we've got Jacob's Biscuit Factory and Boland's Bakery. And the 4th Battalion took a workhouse called the South Dublin Union. All right. So now I want to ask a question. How strategic is taking a biscuit factory and Boland's Bakery? Like, you know. Like if you were trying to conduct a whole military scale operation. How ideal is it to take a biscuit factory and a bakery like I feel like reinforcement wise or even. Even logistically, that just doesn't make sense to me. But maybe after looking at the outline of what you the map of where their positions were strategically in town. You maybe could be convinced of something different, but I'm not convinced because it doesn't make sense to me at all why taking a biscuit factory or a bakery would make sense in this plan. I'm sorry, I'm just being facetious, but I just think it was a bit of a blunder in my eyes because I don't think that's a smart move. But I'm going to start by reading a little portion here from this book called Easter Rising, 1916, The Birth of the Irish Republic by Michael McNally, illustrated by Peter Dennis. So there's a little portion here I wanted to read, just talking about when they started the actual attacks. So when they started the rebellion, right, um, people, they basically closed themselves up in the post office and the British Army started to catch wind. So I'm going to give you a little glimpse into what happened on the second day of battle all right a party of volunteers acting on the part of amateur footballers lost their ball at the entrance to the magazine fort in phoenix park and overpowered the guards with the intent of destroying the facility and stealing quantities of explosives for use by rebel forces they were thwarted however by the fact that the officer of the day had absented himself to the fairy house races and had taken the keys to the magazine with him One of the many tragedies of the Rising was soon to be played out, however, as amongst the prisoners were the family of the fort's commandant. As civilians, they were set free on the condition that they did not attempt to give a warning of what had just happened, but as they dispersed, one of the family's teenage sons bolted out for some of the nearby houses pursued by volunteer Gary Holon. Now remember, volunteer. This is referring to the Irish volunteers, which was part of the rebellion. The young man was beating on the do- on a door, just as Holoan caught and shot him. Moments later, the charges that had been set, oh, the charges that had been set in the fort detonated, giving the warning that Holoan had sought to avoid. Back at Liberty Hall. Connolly was busy marshalling the rest of his forces into formation, joined at the head of the column by Pierce and Plunkett. Just as the order to move off was about to be given, a motor arm laden with arms and ammunition turned to the corner and pulled up alongside the troops. Aboard was the O'Rahilly who, with a characteristic good grace, was prepared to forget his opposition to the uprising now that it had become a reality. Having helped to wind the clock, it would not be a shame to it would be a shame to not hear it chime, was the quote of O'Raheli. About ten minutes before midday, the column moved off towards Sackville Street, observed by British officers in the Metropole Hotel. The formation halted under Colonel's order in front of the General Post Office building, and the order was issued. Battalion halt. Battalion left face. The GPO building charge now that is just a bit of view into the fighting that happened on the second day of battle now some breakdown of law and order actually occurred obviously because now we have this whole rebellion going on you're wondering what is going on i mean there were a lot of people who were not in on this uprising okay a lot of people were not in on this and only the people who were really part of the military council, the IRB, the ICA, and some other paramilitary organ well, I shouldn't say paramilitary but other Irish republican type organizations that were around some small numbers, they were all in on this. But basically, no one knew about this in the lo- in the majority unless you were like in on those groups, but every but if you were like an average citizen in Dublin, the chances of you knowing that is very minimal. So when this happened, there was a breakdown of really law and order because now they start firing. There's there, there's a bunch of fighting going on, insurrection. The British army are like, what is going on? So like they're sending troops and people are fighting and all this fighting's going on. And now there's looting going on now because there's law and order broken down. I mean, no one's going to catch you. They're busy fighting these rebels that are trying to take over Dublin and proclaim a republic. So it's only natural to see a breakdown in law and order. And really you start to see br- the British start to pl- flood Dublin. In fact, you see sixteen thousand British troops. Just, just think about this. Sixteen thousand British troops, all right, take over Dublin and about a thousand of the RIC, which is the Royal Irish Constabulary. In English, that's the Royal, that's the Irish police. The Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC, and 16,000 British troops. So all of them are taking on, in comparison, the RRB and the volunteer group and the ICA altogether had about 1,250 men. And the other organizations had about 400 men. All right. I mean, just understand, these numbers are not very big. They're, they're, they're not very. They're not even something I feel like 16,000 against 1,200, you know. No, 1,600. Some 1,600 people would be worthy to fight. But, anyways, the defenses that they all had were decimated, all right? And it bypassed that. And literally bypassed all these defenses. I mean, hey, 16,000 against, you know, 1,600. Of course they would be bypassed i mean it was only a matter of time before they were and literally by the end of the week they had no choice but to surrender in fact what should be noted is that with the little manpower they had they were able to wound the the british soldiers to a point where shells and amu- but the problem right they were able to take out british soldiers but the problem is is as shells and ammunition start to run out, they eventually had to surrender themselves. And it makes sense. I mean, you, I mean you're literally cutting yourself off. You're taking strategic positions across town. You're, for example, you're taking the post office, the bakery, and a biscuit factory. And I mean, unless you enclose yourself with ammunition, there is no way that you're going to be able to continue on this fight now if you took like some unguarded barracks that has ammunition lying around obviously you'd be more successful but if you take a place where you do not have that lying around you will literally start to run out of ammunition and that's what happened they started to run out of ammunition and they had no choice but to surrender Alrighty, and literally by april 29th we start to realize pierce well not not we but pierce started to realize hey I don't think we have much more to do. Um, And literally, they decided that was the end. I'm going to read another portion here. Um, I think this is interesting, to be honest. There's a lot here to say, but I'm going to read another portion here. Kind of talking about how the end of the fighting occurred. And this is from page 87 of the same book. At the rebel headquarters... The situation was strained. Clark, the lifelong revolutionary, wanted to carry on the fight, irrespective of outcome or consequences, while his colleagues within the provisional government began to waver. I think that's something to already look at in detail right there. Clark was a revolutionary. He was a major proponent for an independent republic. And he's like, hey, I'm willing to die to the death. Like even if we lose, if I die fighting for this republic, it's going to be worth it. And I think that's one thing actually would be a good thing to stop and talk here about. One of the major things that most people who were part of this rebellion started to realize is that they were not going to win this. They did realize that. But what they wanted to happen was that they could have they, they would die in such a way that they were basically martyrs for the revolution. That was their whole idea around this. We, we may not win, but if we could be martyrs for the revolution, then we have achieved everything we wanted to achieve, you see. Okay. Now, when this happened, they started to realize that the, the fight... The art the 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 fight in them was for something that was greater than them. The, the the Easter Rising was only a part of the whole it was only a step in the whole goal of Irish independence. Alrighty, back to the reading. The crux came when Pierce witnessed a family trying to escape their burning home under the cover of a white flag being cut down by British fire. Now, one thing I must mention, remember these relations between Ireland and Britain, they're not very good. So when Pierce saw a family trying to escape from a house under the cover of a white flag and being shot down by the British, that's when Pierce started to realize... Okay, now we're just losing people. You see, it's no longer just us military people who are getting wounded. Now it's random civilians who really probably had nothing to do with this. But they're getting killed for something we started. And it started to take a toll on Pierce. And thus, Pierce decided, hey, you know what? Let's surrender. It's a tough thing because it's, a lot of this was... The British had a lot of hostilities towards Ireland, and with that, he started, I I shouldn't say he, the British army started to literally shoot and take out those who they considered part of the rebellion, but they just wanted to make a point and squash that rebellion. If that meant killing civilians, if that meant killing killing people in the ICA who were fighting against them with guns, that works too. But they were willing to do anything to stop this rebellion. And they were going to use brute force to do it. Orders were given. Orders were then given for all insurgent forces to observe a ceasefire of one hour's duration. whilst contact was made with the British High Commandant. Oh, British High Command. I cannot read. And at 1245... Nurse Elizabeth O'Farrell was sent to meet with the officer in charge of the area. Nurse O'Farrell passed through the hands of several officers before being brought, through, being brought before Lowe. <clears throat> the general response was that he could not treat with the rebels unless they agreed to surrender unconditionally. And he gave Pierce's plenipotentiary half an hour's grace before the hostilities would recommence. At first, the volunteer leader demurred, but Lowe made his point more forcefully and at 2.30, Pierce, escorted by Nurse O'Farrell, met Lau at the top of Great Britain Street, where he surrendered his sword to the British officer. Pierce and Lau were then driven to Parkgate, where after a terse meeting with Maxwell, he signed the instrument of surrender. This is what I wanted to read. This part where you start to understand how this rebellion affected more than just Pierce and those who were interested in rebelling for the goal of an Irish Republic. In order to prevent the further slaughter of of Dublin citizens, And in the hope of saving the lives of our followers, now surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered, the members of the provisional government present at headquarters headquarters, have agreed to an unconditional surrender, and the commandants of the various districts in the city and country will order their commands to lay down arms. The note was countersigned by Connolly on behalf of the Citizen Army, and then taken to each of the battalions in turn. Although the final surrenders would not take place until Sunday, the rising was effectively over. This is how the Irish Rebellion ended, the Easter ri- up, uh, the Easter Rising ended. But there's more. You see, they did view, right? They've had this view that they were martyrs for the revolution. That's their view. We are martyrs for the revolution, and we're going to do whatever it takes to get what we need in the future. And if that means us dying in the process, so be it. But we're going to make it. And it's amazing, because by April 29th, they surrendered. Pierce decided there's no point in having more loss of life. We're just going to lose more men, and we're not going to gain anything against the British Army. And now I'm going to read to you some of the statistics of the total casualties brought about by the rising. There were 64 rebel volunteers, and uh, 64 rebel volunteers that were killed. Sixteen more were executed by the British Army after the uprising. The British Army suffered 140 killed and 318 wounded. The RIC suffered 17 deaths, 220 civilians were killed, and 600 civilians were wounded. Just think about the gravity of this situation. When a war or some sort of military political uprising is started, you are bringing in more than just the people who are involved. The people who are involved are just a small portion of this picture, right? Some 80 of the IRB, ICA, M- Military Council were killed. Some 140 and were killed and 300 wounded of the British Army. But you have over 800 civilians that are wounded and killed in the process. These are the types of things <clears throat> where... If you hold to an ideal, you understand that these people understood that, look, in holding to this ideal of building a republic, we are going to die in this process. And they realized that other people were going to die, too. But they believed so much in their ideals that they did it anyways. And the, out, the aftermath of this is insane because so much happened. 3,430 suspects were arrested in being connected to the rebellion. Just think about that: 3,430 suspects. Sixteen leaders, the 16 main leaders, the seven signatories, um, um, the seven signatories of the proclamation, right? The, the main people of the military council. Pierce, McDonough, Connolly, etc., etc., those type of people, Plunkett, they were all captured and arrested. 1,480 people were jailed. I mean, these are just astounding numbers. But the British were willing to snuff out anything that was involved in this rebellion. And they literally thought, hey... While World War One's going on, we're just gonna do this, and Britain will let us go. But no, Britain was not willing to let them go. Britain wanted to keep them. And <clears throat> honestly, you can tell by the reactions towards the uprising, uh, towards the rising, because reaction-wise, there was very little public support actually for the rebels. Most of the rebels were actually largely blamed for the hundreds of being pe- the hundreds of people being killed, and it would make sense. I mean. Most people really weren't in the know about what was going on. So having a bunch of these people die, you know, for what? Just because you guys think that by some minuscule chance, you guys are going to become an independent Irish Republic, you know, and therefore there was little public support. In fact, even though there was little public support on one on one side, On the other side, there were actually some Irish people who were like, hold on. I like the idea of having an independent republic. You know, I wasn't for it before, but I like the idea. And the worst part about this is that the Sinn Féin party, the same one created by Arthur Griffith in 1905, but, you know, it didn't pan out. That same party was wrongly blamed for the uprising by the British army and british media or no the british and irish media i should say not army british and irish media now the shin fein party was blamed for this and why because remember shin fein really in gaelic has to do with like we the people right we being independent like that, that's the whole general translation of the word Sinn fein all right like being able to being able to work with ourselves, being um, self-sufficient. That's the word I was looking for. So Sinn Féin, the Sinn Féin party was actually wrongly blamed for this because it was, not the IC, it was not Sinn Féin. It was ICA, the IRB, the Irish Volunteers, all with that military council that did this. Nevertheless, of course, Sinn Féin seemed like an easy target because they're like, oh... So Sinn Féin, you know, meaning, hey, we want to be in, like, you know, we want to be a self-sufficient Ireland and Gaelic. Well, that's got to be the people who did this. But in fact, it wasn't. But regardless, that said, Eamon de Valera, another major player moving forward, he basically takes over Sinn Féin, along with John Redmond. And... We now start to see, after the rising, the upcoming back and forth in the Irish Parliament. Let me correct myself real quick. I I didn't mean the Irish Parliament. I meant the Parliament in Westminster, but the Irish Parliamentary Party being involved in Parliament at Westminster. But anyways. Continuing on, we see that now we have a figure named Eamon de Valera, all right? He and John Redmond take over the Irish, really, they start taking over Sinn Féin. And the Irish Parliamentary Party starts winning elections back and forth, kind of, you know, tugging with the other people who are not really with um, for, right, the Tories, really not for Ireland. And they're winning elections back and forth, right? Kind of going back, they win one, another, Tories win, back and forth, kind of like that, until 1918. And when in 1918, we now have the conscription crisis. The thing that no one wanted, but eventually happened, was the conscription crisis. And basically the British tried to force conscription on Ireland, and basically all the Irish were like, yeah, no, um, this is not our fight, so this should be none of our business. <laughs> and basically, this caused a bunch of people to basically stand behind Ireland because they're like, why did you do that? This is not their fight. This, is, this shouldn't be something that you should really allow them to be forced to do. Anyways, because of this, a lot of public opinion started to actually go behind Sinn Féin. Which is funny, because it seems like Sinn Féin seemed to be this huge public thing that everyone knew about. But to be honest, it wasn't Sinn Féin. (laughs) It wasn't Sinn Féin. It was the ICA. And the IRB and the Irish volunteers that were behind this. But Emin de Valera and John Redmond took it over Sinn Fein. And with help of the Irish Parliamentary Party, we're starting to take force in Parliament on behalf of Ireland, right? So, in essence, the burden of the battle started to be handed off to different players, all with one goal, and that was to make Ireland an independent republic. Now, in December 1918, Sinn Féin, which was another parliamentary party that was taken over in Parliament, wins Ireland's general elections under Eamon er, de Valera. But by January 21st, 1919, they all gathered in Dublin to proclaim the new Irish Republic under the president of the Dáil, the Doyle. Iron, I do not speak Gaelic, so forgive me if I pronounce that very wrong, (laughs) but they basically decided, hey, we're going to pronounce this new Irish Republic. And the shots that fired this war, oh, before I even get to what started this war, what was the importance of proclaiming this new Irish Republic? Because they basically won themselves their own parliament in dublin that was like basically the whole point of this and basically like okay now that we get our own parliament we're going to proclaim our own republic now now that said it didn't end very well because or it didn't stall very well because two irish policemen got shot and killed And that was really what we call the first shots of the Anglo-Irish War. But really, after those shots, very little fighting actually happened. But basically, now we had people that actually wanted to be independent. All right. Now they're like, okay, we're going to be independent. All these forefathers who were fighting in this got killed. And we cannot let them down because that means they would have fought for nothing. So. Now they're like, we need to be independent. And Ulster is like, um, I still want to be a part of the UK. So, um, yeah. So, De Valera, Michael Collins, and Cathal Brugha basically went on to organize the Anglo-Irish War for Independence, which started in 1919 and basically ended in 22? No, 21. And... That resulted in the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921 for 26 of the 32 Ulster uh, of the 22 Irish counties, excluding Ulster. And the Irish and the executed Irish leaders were basically venerated as martyrs for the cause of the Irish Republic. In fact, of all the um, Irish men who were killed, the 16 executed men that were killed. James Connolly, who was wounded um, during, I think almost on the third day of the battle, um, on the third day of the rising, he was wounded. And in fact, he was so wounded, he couldn't even stand up to be executed. So they shot him in a chair. Just think about that for a moment. They just sat him in a chair and said, oh, you're too wounded to stand. So we're going to strap you to a chair and shoot you instead. And that's how Connolly died. But. These executed leaders were venerated as martyrs. And basically the whole point around the Anglo-Irish War is, hey, they were the stepping stones. They were the catalyst that started this revolution. We cannot let it stop with us. We've got to carry on that mission. Alrighty, And one of the ways that the uh, war for independence really was really strong is that they used guerrilla tactics. And a lot of these guerrilla tactics were shootings and burnings burning buildings, ambushes, and these ambushes are happened on lone roads where people were alone and take them out, you know, like th- these were very, very kamikaze tactics. These were not your conventional war tactics that the British used. And you started to see now this violence happening a lot between the IRA and the British army. And really, as we, as I mentioned before, the deep mastermind behind this whole mission was Michael Collins. You see. De Valera, he was the public guy. He knew, he was a politician. He knew how these things work. Michael Collins was not a politician, funnily enough, because he eventually started to become political. Weird, but really fundamentally, Emin De Valera was a good public speaker, a good politician. He knew how to make things work. But Michael Collins wasn't. He was a military mind. And thus, Michael Collins was really the one who was calling the shots behind this whole operation. In fact, the British Army actually didn't even have a picture of Michael Collins. He was this elusive. So they just knew him by name, but they had no idea who he was. They actually had, I believe they had literally a whole, they had like a fuzzy picture of him. And it was of the back of his head turning around and looking at some other way but he had a hat on and a coat but they actually didn't have a picture of his face he was that elusive so they actually didn't know who what his face looked like he was that elusive he was insane but collins had prominent members of the british administration killed and you're gonna find it, it gets deep because by august 1920 the british parliament passed the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act, which basically imposed martial law, but really it was designed to just put down the rebellion. Okay, but instead, with the, with martial law placed, the violence in Ireland started. Like that's when it actually started. That's when you actually between 1920 and 1921, you see the bulk of the of the fighting, the bulk of the wounds and of the wounded and casualties that happened in the war. And the worst part about this is they did not want to classify this as a war. And why did they do that? They didn't want to classify it as a war. Because if they did, then the IRA would be granted belligerent status. And because of that, that would literally allow them to be an independent country, in that sense, or an independent state. But they did not want to claim them as independents. David, David Lloyd George and our dear friend Winston Churchill did not want to do that. And thus they decided, hey, we're not going to give them belligerent status. So instead, what we're going to do is have World War I veterans go to Ireland and we're, we're going to have them impose martial law. Now, these World War I veterans... By then um, they went in with their, these were experienced fighters, right? They went in with their classic dark tops and khaki trousers. These dark green tops and khaki trousers. And they became known as the black and tans. They were actually, they imposed martial law, but they also caused a lot of terror and brutalities. But the auxiliaries actually were worse. And who were the auxiliaries? I call them the auxiliaries, but the auxiliaries. These were another section of the British military also sent to impose martial law. And they all basically performed brutalities, killing people in the streets, killing and wounding and maiming people. It just was terrible. All for this idea of independence. And in fact, on November 2020... 2020, forgive me, on the 21st of November, 1920, Collins had um, this section of the IROA called the Squad, and this squad basically tried wiping out all of the British intelligence operatives that were living in Dublin, and in fact, 14 died, and 5 were wounded, so it was a pretty successful mission. I mean, this was personal for Collins. I mean, he literally had men. And, and, and this was where I find that our culture is definitely different today than what it was back then. Because actually what Collins did is that when his men would be like, all right, go find these men, go kill them, such and such. One of the men that were killed was actually killed in front of, their fa- in front of his family. He was walking home. And one of the guys came and said, are you so-and-so with a gun? Are you with so-and-so? And he said, yes. All right. Um, um, do you have any last words to say? No? Okay. Bang. Shot him right in front of his family. like Just like that. And I mean, they were very, I mean, this was ruthless, brutal, right? Another one I heard about was, I think it was my professor telling me this one. There was this man in a park. He was just at his park doing some morning exercises, just doing jogging around in the park, probably doing some push-ups, jumping jacks. Who knows? He was just doing these exercises. He was in the park and he was a British operative and British intelligence operative. And he goes and one of the squad members found him and said, Hey, are you so-and-so? You know, we're going to have to shoot you, right? Yep. Are you a Christian? Yep. All right. Go ahead and say your prayers. The man went ahead and said, said his prayers. Said, are you done saying your prayers? Alright. Shot him in the head. Killed him. I mean, like, these are the types of things that the squad performed. So, it was very brutal. Alright. The This was not something easy that just went on. No. I mean, you can understand why the British would be like, hey, 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 hold up. You can't do that. You can't just walk around just shooting us up like that. And... 14 died, 5 were wounded, and that was on the 21st of November, 1920. Later that day, at a football game, for us Americans, it's soccer, but anyways, at this football game, at Croke Park, the auxiliaries responded by driving into the, onto the field and shooting into the crowd, leaving fourteen civilians killed, and one of the football players killed. And this incident became known as Bloody Sunday. And because of this, now you start to see other counties starting to revolt left and right, which caused most of them to actually be put under martial law. You see counties like Cork, Kerry, Limerick, etc. These were all put under martial law. And while all of this was happening. The, gov- the British government decided, hey, you know what? Let us create a fourth Home Rule Bill. And this Home Rule Bill was created under the P- British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George. And this basically split Ireland into North and s- into Northern and Southern Ireland. Now, by June 1921, the British and Irish governments basically signed a truce that halted the war. And this Irish delegation was led by Collins and Griffith. But you see, the problem is, is that it dissolved the idea of republic. It dissolved the Irish Republic and made a self-governing dominion under the United Kingdom. In other words, they would become Canada. And the result of that is... Now, of course, becoming like Canada was not really something that the Irish people wanted because they're like, we want to be independent. We do not want to be a self-governing dominion of the UK. Like, like There's no point in that. And under this treaty, Northern Ireland, all right, these Ulster counties were allowed to opt out of the free state and remain in the UK. And obviously, Ulster's like, yes, because I do not want to be a part of this rebellion. So they're all like, yeah, we're going to be part of the UK. And when this treaty was signed, Michael Collins was like, this is a step into making the Irish Republic what it needs to be. This is good. This is a good compromise. I think this is great. Eamon de Valera. Also part of the IRA, by the way. All right. These were all part parts of the IRA. Okay. This is, this is one IRA that are now starting to become, I'm not for this treaty. Other people are like, I'm for this treaty. In other words, I'm for this treaty. I'm against this treaty. Eman de Valera, he goes, um, no, no, this is not what the, the, the martyrs of, of 1916 died for. This is not what they died for. You cannot do that. No. Signing a treaty will actually give them what they want. We need to be independent. And thus the Irish Civil War started in 1922. It's a, it's a whole story, but in short, the Irish Civil War basically became a conflict between Irish Catholics themselves, the pro-treaty and the anti-treaty side. All for one purpose of, do we have a treaty or do we not? Do we become an independent country or should we remain whole? It was less that now. It was not that. It was, do we, do we remain in this treaty or not? Michael Collins and De Valera basically now became on the opposite sides because they, their ideologies were different, and thus, this war basically had all these implications that led to the anti-treaty side losing and the pro-treaty side winning. And not long after that, Ireland actually became a full-fledged republic independent of the British. They weren't a self-governing thing like Canada, but they actually became independent. And so did, and actually not um, Ulster, but Ulster actually remained part of Northern Ireland, or Ulster becoming Northern Ireland, remained part of the UK. And this is literally where our story ends today. The pursuit of liberty is not easy. As George Orwell said, right, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And I thought that was interesting because it sums up a lot of what we were talking about today quite interestingly. Being able to fight for ideals means that you're going to have different sides, but the reason they wanted these ideals is because they had a vision of a culture where we can be our own people. The British were not allowing them that culture in entirety. Just look at the famine. That was probably one of the major things that actually exacerbated this whole movement. The Irish potato famine literally made them realize that the British did not care. They viewed them as as, as just you know other people who just were peasants. And, farmers and don't even speak proper English, you know, but it was more than that. They were a culture. They were a whole people. And as a result, they were willing to go through whatever it took to gain that free Republic. But at the end, the ideologies of how to get there were different. Michael Collins was actually assassinated not too long um, after 19, I believe he was assassinated in about 1922. He was assassinated not too long after that and Emma de Valera actually went on to become the first president of Ireland. So our story ends here. And you know, I just have one thing to say is that in all of this, we recognize that one of the things is that with the way that humanity is, right? The ability to be free and to think for yourself, because you are your own culture, your own group of people, your own body of people, hap only works if you're allowed the liberty to do so. Ireland was not allowed that liberty until they had to fight for it. I'm not saying go fight for it. I'm not saying I'm not trying to incite uh, an insurrection or anything. I'm just saying they had to go fight for it. And I can understand why they would, because they felt like they were not being heard by the British, and thus they had to do so. Now, that said, it did lead to a lot of ramifications. A lot of innocent people died, but they achieved that goal of being a free republic. Those martyrs didn't die in vain. Anyways, I thought that was amazing. I hope you found this episode enjoyable. And I hope you are ready for what's coming over the next few weeks. Our next topic is going to be amazing. This next topic I've been waiting to publish for so long now. Our next topics um, will be less series style, but it will be more events and major topics. Um, I decided to start doing this type of um, layout after I started coming up with more plans on how to format my episodes. And starting Wednesday, we'll be having our unsung hero segment of the podcast. So I hope there will be a lot of material for you all to participate in and to, part- and to enjoy. Remember, if you do not know your history, you will not know your future. I hope you have a great day. My name is Michael Musangu. See you next time.